high gas prices, nuclear reactors closed forever, the growth of the electric car industry, record-breaking temperatures, and Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas. There has been no shortage in energy-related news stories this summer, and we know that they're not going to go away anytime soon. This is Stella Edison with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we will be speaking with two OUP authors on the need for affordable and clean energy, which is one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and more specifically, we'll discuss what we should be doing and why it matters. For our first interview, we spoke with Martin J. Pasqualetti, Professor of Geography at Arizona State University and the author of The Threat of Energy, recently published by OUP. He talked with us about our increasing dependence on non-renewable energy and how energy is connected to human happiness and security. We're here with Martin Pasqualetti, the author of The Threat of Energy. Uh, Martin, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to talk with you today. And I am a professor of uh, geography in the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University. I've been there since 1977. So I've seen a lot of changes, especially in the energy sphere. So we'll be talking about some of those today. Thank you. Um, in your book, you mentioned that our use of energy is the single most important influence on human behavior. Could you elaborate? Sure. Um, one could argue that it's the most important at its basic level, such as keeping blood moving or eating or working or fighting and so forth. However, my contention uh, takes a somewhat different approach. Uh, that energy is tied to all our activities, our personal activities and our collective activities. Clearly, other factors influence human interactions, greed, avarice, jealousy, and so forth. But my intent was to emphasize the critical role energy has in everything we do. It's not always obvious. It is often missed. So we must think of energy as a basic human right and as a basic human need. Why and when did we become so dependent on energy? Well, if you mean uh, kind of in general, then we must recognize that uh, we have always been dependent on energy just to stay alive. It's clear. Uh, this energy came almost entirely from the sun for almost the entire time that humans and human-like creatures have been on the earth uh, and the control of uh, what the sun provides. So what I'm saying is that energy came almost entirely from the sun. Uh, that is that we use plants, we use animals for food, we use heat to move around, so mobility, self-defense, and all that came from the sun. So we became dependent upon energy as soon as we became human in any form. Now, if you mean dependent on more concentrated forms of energy, then we're talking about moving toward just not sun, but concentrated sunlight in the form of wood. And that came into play quite early in human evolution because of its benefits, its portability, the use of it in self-protection, warmth, language development, and a broadened food supply. So once technological advancements permitted, we were able to accelerate uh, the use of more concentrated forms of energy, uh, i.e. the fossil fuels. So it was at that time when our dependency grew as we embraced the use of mechanical energy that powers machines. Well, that shift provided an exponentially more power, more heft to everybody than they could ever provide as a human and population then skyrocketed. The planet started filling up quickly and all resources came under increased demand. So today we can barely keep pace with demand from such finite resources. So the overall time of fossil fuels in the history of humankind will be relatively short. Now keep in mind that we've only transitioned really to oil in the 50s for 50% 50 of our energy on, on the just the, just the more the developed countries. Uh, the other uh, parts of the world, the global south, still depends upon uh, more non-commercial sorts of energy like animal dung or wood. So we are completely dependent on energy in everything we do, uh, and that's why I suggested that we should be looking at it as a thread of energy weaving in and out of all that matters. What do you think was the tipping point, and why did we miss it? If you're referring to our ever-increasing dependence on non-renewable energy, that really happened in the 20th century, and now we're addicted. 
because the energy power uh, that we have acquired through the use of fossil fuels gives us so many things that we love to keep, like cars, we like to have planes, we have communication and so forth. So we are addicted to fossil fuels. And that addiction uh, has manifest in many ways, including the trillions and trillions of dollars we have in the energy infrastructure all over the world. It is uh, the world's largest enterprise. Oil is the largest commodity in world trade in terms of value. Uh, the American electricity transmission system is the largest machine on the planet. We have an enormous investment in fossil fuels. Do you think we can turn this around, this energy addiction? Well, turning it around is to reduce our dependency on fossil fuels and nuclear fuels, and that will take time. As I was alluding to before, we've got trillions of dollars of investment and in infrastructure, and no one in in the financial area is going to say, yes, let's just abandon all of that equipment and we'll just let it sit there. Uh, nobody's going to want to do that. In fact, you just couldn't do it and, and survive uh, as, a, uh, as a human population on the planet. So the dependency of energy on all its forms, that's not going to change. We're always going to depend on energy. We can be dependent upon less energy. We can always become more energy efficient, of course. So that is the key role here is can we become more efficient in the use of energy? And then can we also use energy resources that are not finite, whereas the fossil fuels are indeed finite? So how are we going to get ourselves away from the use of fossil fuels and nuclear fuels in any short amount of time? Uh, that's not likely to happen. The transition is absolutely essential and critical, but we're not gonna get there immediately. As a follow-up, you mentioned fossil fuels and nuclear energy, um, and I was just wondering, do you think that nuclear energy is a good intermediary source of energy? I'd rather avoid that, uh, that option as much as we can. And I can tell you a conversation I had with two people. One was James Hansen, who is one of the earliest uh, uh, individuals, scientists at a high level who had testified in Congress that we really have to pay attention to global climate change and the, the, the need for decarbonization. But he also says, uh, and I had breakfast with him not too long ago, I said, why is it that you were an advocate of, of nuclear power? And he said, uh, I'm, I'm more worried about climate change than I am about uh, all the implications of nuclear power and the ethics and the morality and the risks and ha hazards of it. And then two weeks later, um, I had a conversation with Amory Levins from the Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, and, and I said, uh, your friend Jim Hansen just told me that uh, you've got to have nuclear power. And Amory Levins, who's world-famous um, advocate of renewables and energy efficiency, said to me, well, uh, Jim is a friend of mine, but... Uh, I think he's completely wrong about this. Uh, there are plenty of options on the renewable side if we would just get moving in a more positive way. So I take that those two bits of uh, opinion and I kind of merge them and say, I would rather not have nuclear. There's way too many side effects of nuclear, just too many to mention here, that, uh, that we need to actually keep in mind that we have opportunities to do other things. We can make everything so much more efficient with the money that we're spending on nuclear uh, that we don't even need nuclear. So if you consider the hundreds of billions of dollars that people are going to spend on nuclear and the links with nuclear proliferation uh, and the long-term waste hazards of nuclear, uh, you've got to say to yourself, is that really the way we want to go? Is that what we want to bequeath to our our descendants uh, move more in the renewable energy area and just set that nuclear thing aside. Uh, we, we, we will not solve long-term problems with that short-term solution. What do you think are ways that we could become more energy efficient on an individual level, like every, every person for themselves? Well, I, I think the, the, the old adage, and, and oh, by old, I mean like mid-70s, uh, is that uh, saving energy is much cheaper than creating more energy resource development. So in other words, if you have uh, $1,000 uh, 
to, or let's say $10,000 to put a new air conditioning unit on your house. And I need that where I live in Arizona, where it's like 45 degrees today Celsius. So if I have that $10,000, is that is that really what I really need, or do I just need to have uh, tighter windows and uh, insulation in my attic and using efficient appliances? I could probably spend a thousand dollars and seal up my house so much I don't even need that new air conditioner. So anyone can do it, but it's difficult to get the numbers necessary. So it's it's much easier to just slap on a new air conditioner than it is to go around saying, well, seal up your windows, seal up your doors, put insulation in your attic. You know, everybody says, ah, just put the air conditioner in. So there is a public perception aspect that we have to deal with here. Uh, and the, the public persuasion aspect that we have to deal with here. So eventually people will understand this and eventually we'll get it into the building codes and everybody will have it as a standard way of saving energy. There's plenty of other ways to save energy, but that's what you could do in your own house. Do you feel that the general population knows everything that they should know about this? Or do you think the conversation in general is just not um, at that point yet? Which is why people still just turn on the air conditioning. Yes, well, the, <laughs> I, would, I would say that the general population does not know everything that they should know about anything. Uh, so uh, this is that's why education point. is so important, and that's why I'm in the business I'm in. So I think uh, uh, I have the opportunity to interact with hundreds of students a year, and over a period of 40 years or 45 years uh, that I've been working at Arizona State University, uh, I've interacted with thousands of students. So this is the an influence, hopefully, a portion of those, uh, and trying to get those people to think more uh, holistically about energy. So we need to address the benefits of shifting to renewables at every level of education. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, two generations will probably be ex ex kind of a standard to move people in that direction. It took about two generations for people to stop smoking. It took about two generations for people to wear the seat belts without thinking. Uh, it just takes a while. And you have to start fairly early or as early as you can uh, with young people and emphasize it uh, throughout their lives so that uh, it becomes part of the pattern that they have uh, in life. Are there specific forms of renewable energy that you think are more likely to um, to become prevalent soon? Well, there's no there's no doubt that solar is is the energy uh, renewable energy resource uh, that we should be using. Uh, because for all sorts of reasons, um, it's endless, it's pollution-free, it's, it's uh, financially free. And the derivatives of solar energy in the form of wind, for example. Uh, wind and solar now provide about, uh, well, renewable energy in the world provides about 13% of, uh, of the energy that we need. So, uh, and in places like uh, Britain, there have been times when they've been completely off coal using renewables. Uh, the North Sea is thousands of wind turbines. Uh, Denmark is largely working on renewable energy. Germany is highly invested in, in renewable energy in the form of wind. Arizona is, of course, uh, extremely sunny, and uh, there's available resources just everywhere. It's, it's not always absolutely easy, I should say, to put in these installations because people, people always have some reason to, uh, to question what you're doing. And, and and for good reason. So we do have to be careful where we deploy these, but we are clearly moving toward a more and more of a solar future. And yes, there might be some technological improvements, um, but I'm not holding my breath for fusion. I'm not holding my breath for any of these others. Solar is here. It's cheaper than anything else. That's what we should be using. What are the implications of not making clean energy affordable? Well, so it's it's actually uh, more affordable in many instances than any other source. So thanks to uh, the technological innovations that have occurred in the last just 10 or 15 years, we've been able to lower the price for uh, solar, for example, so that it's now cheaper than nuclear, cheaper than coal, cheaper than anything. Uh, so it is already affordable. Now, it's not always available where you want it, uh, but I would argue that it is available everywhere. Uh, some places is better than others. The, the Sahara, where I live in the Southwest, certainly uh, many places in Pakistan. Uh, you know, the desert regions of the world uh, have an enormous solar uh, potential, uh, and 
the solar cells will just uh, convert whatever solar energy falls on them into a, into electricity. Uh, you can you can operate a solar powered calculator in your house just with an incandescent light on. Uh, so it is affordable and it is of course available. And I always like to point out that solar is the most ubiquitous of all energy resources. It's everywhere already. Uh, right now, we're dependent upon fossil fuels, which are concentrated in a few places. And we then have to move it all over the country uh, and all over the world. So 80 million barrels of oil per day are being pumped out and refined and moved all over the world. It's an extremely complicated and very expensive operation to distribute a resource that's concentrated like that whereas solar is everywhere. So you kind of think, well, wait a minute. Why are we working with finite site-specific resources when we got a resource that's right there every day, all the time, uh, and we should use it as much as we can? How is energy connected to human happiness and security? I know that this is a large part of your book as well, where you talk about the social implications of our energy consumption. Yes, well, I, the idea of, of the threat of energy is... is, is uh, derives from some thinking of mine over the, over the time I've been at the university. Uh, in the beginning, I started teaching about energy resources. You know, you teach about uh, renewables in, in a technical way. You can talk about them as a, in a distributional way. You can talk about fossil fuels. You can talk about nuclear fuels and so forth. But my appraisal of that approach is that it misses the social implications. So when I wrote The Threat of Energy, I linked it up with several different uh, social issues like health and safety and like business and like climate change and a variety of other things because I wanted to emphasize not the technology of the resource, although you have to understand that. I was emphasizing it's everywhere. You need to be paying attention. Everything you do is affected by the, the opportunities to have energy price of energy, the availability of energy. And in the global north, we don't think too much about that. But in the global south, which means, you know, places in Africa, places in many other parts of the world, India and so forth, they are dependent on non-commercial fuels. Uh, for example, in many places, young women have to go out every day, sometimes miles and miles away, to collect wood enough to bring home so they can cook uh, and uh, heat. Well, that takes them out of the educational realm completely. So that takes them into a uh, realm that actually is more risky to them because of personal attacks. It takes them into a position where they're living in smoke all the time. So uh, the indoor air pollution from burning these non-commercial fuels kills more people per year than malaria, yellow fever, AIDS, or anything else combined. So. If you want human happiness and human security, you're going to have to have a consistent, affordable, available source of energy. And without that, there is very acute opportunities for disruptions in your life and your happiness. So in the global south, they have less mobility. They don't have access to fuel for cooking and heating. They have to risk personal safety and health to supply themselves. In the global north, we're kind of spoiled by the conveniences of energy. So the, the key is how do we get that human happiness and security levels higher? Everybody knows is access to energy and specifically access to electricity. Um, what made you think of this aspect of energy? So the focus on human happiness and security, which is uh, more unusual if you consider the, I guess, broader conversation? Well, I mean, as soon as you're aware that uh, people are risking their lives to supply themselves with heat and cooking fuel, uh, you start to think about that. Uh, when you look at Nigeria or other places that have a huge amount of uh, energy resources and 240 or so million people who are living in poverty, you say, well, how is that possible? Why is it that they have so many resources, but they have such high levels of poverty? Or when you look at... Um, less developed portions of any city, including the Phoenix area where I live, and you find people who have to figure out, are they going to be cool in the summer or they're going to eat? Are they going to be comfortable or they're going to take their medicine? So as soon as, soon as you start thinking along those lines, uh, you realize that uh, it is a primary in ingredient in how people actually can 
uh, enjoy life and, 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 and feel secure about life. Without energy, uh, there can be no security. There can be happiness at, at some level, but you're constantly, constantly looking for some forms of energy because you, you've got to have it to stay alive. So I realized that in the early stages of my career, I was working in, in, the, in the kind of conflicts between uh, energy and land use. And I was, then I was looking at the public perceptions about renewable energy. Uh, so I realized that wind power, for example, is pollution-free, doesn't need water and so forth. Uh, but people perceive it differently because they can see it and they can see it move. So I was then turned my attention for the last 15 or 20 years on public perception of renewable energy landscapes, because you're going to have to get the public to go along with this. Um, there might be countries where you can simply say, well, this is the way we're going to do it, but it doesn't work that way in, in, in Western countries, in OECD countries, for example. You have to get public uh, approval uh, to, to make these changes. So even when energy is mostly available, it still affects your happiness. When it's not much available, then you have a constant worry and a constant sense of insecurity. And final question, um, are you hopeful and optimistic for the future when it comes to our energy consumption? Well, about 20 feet from me is my 11-year-old grandson, and if I'm not optimistic, then uh, I, I will have to go into a, a yurt somewhere and just contemplate uh, my navel, uh, because this is just, uh, this is, you have to be optimistic, and I'm doing everything I can uh, to raise the awareness of, of people uh, to the importance of energy, to encourage them to move toward a renewable, non-polluting, ultimately hugely available source of energy like the sun. So I'm optimistic, or otherwise I wouldn't continue being someone in the university realm. So yes, I am optimistic, uh, and we, but we have to move faster. Uh, we certainly have to move faster on climate change. Uh, we're already suffering uh, from the early effects of climate change. So we're, um, uh, we have to be optimistic. Uh, there's, no, there's no point in being a pessimist about this. So yes, I am optimistic. Thank you so much, Martin, for taking the time to talk to us. Well, it's been my pleasure. I, I've enjoyed very much talking with you, and uh, I hope you all have a great day. Our second guest was Paul F. Meyer, an independent clean fuels consultant and author of The Changing Energy Mix, a systematic comparison of renewable and non-renewable energy, which takes readers through the history of energy in the United States. We discussed the energy types needed for a sustainable future and the dire implications of not changing our energy habits. Our second guest is Paul Meyer. Paul, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's uh, Paul Meyer. I grew up in St. Louis, I went to the University of Arkansas for undergraduate school and then Rice University for my PhD in chemistry. After that, I went to work for 30 years in the petroleum industry for a company called Philip 66, retired in 2008. And then I was a consultant for one of the Chinese state-owned oil companies, Sinopec, helping them with clean fuel uh, issues on their gasoline. And after that, I've simply been retired and I do some consulting for some companies in the United States, as well as working now in the clean fuel and clean energy business. Thank you. Okay, so diving right in. Um, what are the key energy types in use today and what are their pros and cons? All right, I thought I would start by giving a general introduction and let you know that the energy mix is changing. In the world and in the United States, renewable energy is growing in importance. For someone like me who's in his late 60s, it's interesting that if you were born before 1989, you actually lived in the United States where there was no electricity generated from either wind or solar power and very little from other renewable energy sources like geothermal and biomass. Now, after some years of growth in the United States, wind and solar have actually passed uh, hydroelectricity in 2017. And we have 16 states that generated more than 10% of their electricity from wind, four of which actually generated more than 30% of their electricity from wind. In the state in which I live, Oklahoma, we generated 36% of our electricity from wind last year. Coal, which used to be the primary energy driver in the electricity field in the United States, has dropped from 53% 
in the period of 2000 to now less than 20% in 2020, and natural gas has taken over this leadership role, which surpassed coal in 2015. We've seen similar trends in the world. The world did not see any electricity generation from wind until 1985, and none from solar until 1989. And now those two combined generate 9% of the world's electricity supply. We know that uh, consumption is gonna increase in the world. Electricity consumption has actually increased 84% just in the last 20 years. And overall worldwide energy consumption, including heating and transportation fuel has increased 45% over the same period. We're seeing many changes in the transportation sector as well in the United States. We now have 10% of our gasoline market supplied by bioethanol made from corn grain and biodiesel makes up 3% of our market. Although not as fast as Europe and China, we do see some growth in the use of electric vehicles, uh, now totaling 2 million vehicles in the United States, although still a small percentage of the total of 280 million vehicles that we use in the United States. In terms of the key energy in use today, in the transportation industry, we still see that petroleum dominates the field, along with ethanol, which makes up 10% of our gasoline market. Worldwide, the world consumes about 100 million barrels a day of oil, of which the United States consumes 20 million or 20%. Gasoline usage in the United States is close to 9 million barrels per day, and diesel close to 4 million barrels per day. Now, during the George Bush administration from 2000 to 2008, there were quite a few renewable approaches that were adopted, one of which was the refinery fuel standards, which mandated the use of 15 billion gallons of ethanol in our gasoline pool made from corn starch. A second phase of this renewable fuel standard was that we would use 22 billion gallons of gasoline from cellulose ethanol. This has not happened at all, even though it's mandated. And at this time, we've met the 15 billion gallon goal for using starch-based corn ethanol, but we have virtually no cellulosic ethanol being made. Another energy directive during the Bush administration was to shift towards hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, something that's also being pursued in, in Europe. For example, Denmark has a plan to have an entire countrywide fleet of hydrogen fuel vehicles powered by wind turbine-powered electrolysis plants to make the hydrogen. But that really hasn't taken off in the United States. And at this point, we only have about 10,000 hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and less than 50 fueling stations, a very small number compared to the 150,000 fueling stations we have for gasoline. Battery and plug-in hybrids are still a small part of our market, 2% of new sales. But in, in Europe, these sales are booming and there were 10% of new sales. And in China, close to 6% of new sales. Now, if we look at the key energy type we currently use for transportation, petroleum, crude oil, there's proven reserves of 1.7 trillion barrels of oil. So if we look at the current daily consumption, you can see that this is a limited resource with, with about 47 years remaining for crude oil. Naturally improved oil development, deep water drilling and hydraulic fracking could extend this life, but that remains to be seen. And also from a strategic standpoint, eight countries, primarily those in OPEC along with uh, Russia, control 80% of the world's proven reserves. In the electricity field, as I mentioned earlier, generation from coal is decreasing fast and natural gas is really the primary resource in the United States. The problem really with, with coal is that it contains a lot of sulfur, nitrogen and heavy metals. And when you look at sequestering these, and preventing them from creating airborne pollutants or water pollutants, the capital costs just become too expensive and it's only natural for electrical plants to shift towards natural gas. Some of the renewable areas, I'll talk about some of the ones that have been looked at and are stagnant or dying, and then we'll look at the ones that are very promising. First, in terms of the stagnant ones, hydroelectricity and nuclear electricity generation in the United States basically haven't changed in the last 30 or 40 years. For hydroelectric plants, most of the suitable resources have already been exploited. And building storage dams is a very controversial thing since it creates problems with the environment 
displaces people and even fl presents flooding risks. As well, capital costs for hydroelectricity are three times that of a natural gas plant. So there's not a lot of motivation to be building new hydroelectric plants. Nuclear plants are still plagued with uh, some of the issues they've always been plagued with. One is a long-term solution for spent nuclear waste. There was a plan in the United States to have Yucca Mountain in Nevada as a long-term storage, but that, that project was, was discontinued. And currently all nuclear waste is stored on site at nuclear plants in the United States. And of course, there are still concerns about national security and terrorism and accidents like we saw at Chernobyl, Fukushima and Three Mile Island. And like hydroelectricity, nuclear plants are actually six times the cost of building a new natural gas plant. Some of the renewables that look like they would be promising were geothermal, biomass, and something called concentrating solar power. Geothermal is rather straightforward. It's either using seismic activity that's near the surface of the earth or drilling deep into the earth and bringing up heat from the earth to generate steam and generate electricity. The problem is the geothermal costs are very expensive, five times that of a natural gas plant. And the enhanced geothermal plants where they drill to depths of five to eight kilometers are quite expensive. Some of them costing 30 times that of a natural gas plant. Biomass, the real problem there is it's extremely land intensive. If you look, for example, typical electric plant, which is about one gigawatt, and then it'll supply electricity to a half a million people, it would take a state the size of Delaware to provide the fuel to run this one gigawatt power plant. So it's just a very land intensive thing because biomass as a fuel is not as energy rich as coal and petroleum are. Concentrating solar power is an interesting concept, basically using parabolic or satellite dish type reflecting mirrors to generate heat and make steam to run the turbines that provide electricity for a power plant. These saw rapid growth from 2009 to 2015, mostly in Spain and the United States, but the technology stopped growing mainly because the capital costs, again, are five times that of a natural gas power plant and triple that of solar photovoltaic. So where we really see the most growth in the United States and the world for renewable energy is wind-powered electricity generation and solar photovoltaic electricity. Capital costs have made dramatic improvements in the United States over the last five years. The cost of a solar photovoltaic plant has decreased by 62% and the cost of wind plants have decreased by 28%. So just roughly looking at comparisons, a natural gas plant costs about $900 for each kilowatt installed. Onshore wind plants are now around $1,300 and solar photovoltaic $1,400. So these capital costs are closing in on the cost of a natural gas plant. And of course, compared to a natural gas plant, they have the advantage of not needing any fuel to run. So once the capital costs come down, coupled with basically zero cost for the fuel, they can start to become competitive. And in the wind belt of the United States, which is the section through West Texas, Western Kansas, and up there where we have wind velocities averaging over 20 miles an hour. The levelized cost of electricity actually now equals that of a natural gas plant. And a levelized cost of electricity, if that's a term with which you're unfamiliar, is a way of calculating the cost of delivering electricity at a break-even cost. And it includes things like capital cost, fixed and variable operating cost, taxes, and the capacity factor, which is the percentage of time that the planet is online to generate electricity. Likewise, the world saw growth in wind and solar generation, and it's increased from 2% to 6% just in the last 10 years, while solar photovoltaic energy has increased from only 0.3% to 3% over the same time period. So solar and wind worldwide now combined for 9% of the total electricity generation. Now, some things to look out for when we look at fossil fuel resources, that they do have a, a finite life. For example, at current natural gas reserve levels in the world and consumption levels, there's about 53 years remaining. Now that is not to say that there aren't going to be additional natural gas resources found. For example, hydraulic fracking has been used in the United States to increase production. But unless 
those things changed dramatically, we could see natural gas run out before the end of our century. Another thing to consider is that natural gas reserves are actually controlled by 10 countries, the main two of which are Russia and Iran that control 35% of all natural gas in the world. And given what's happened politically with both of these countries, it's problematic to depend on Russia and Iran for providing what is basically our number one method of generating electricity, both in the United States and the world. Likewise, coal has finite resources, but there are more years of that remaining. At, at current consumption levels and current proven reserve levels, there's about 135 years left for coal. And for uranium, there's about 100 years left for uranium. So another motivation really for looking and developing renewable energy is that we have the knowledge that fossil fuels and uranium do have finite lives. And at some point in the future, we're going to have to rely on these renewable energy sources simply because that's the only resource that we have available. What are the energy types that will increase in importance over the next decades? I think we're going to see a continuation of the development in wind and solar energy. Just in the United States over the last five years, we've seen wind electricity generation go from 5 to 8%, and solar has increased from less than 1% to 2%. And if we extrapolate the trends that we're seeing to the year 2030, we can see 15% of wind-generated electricity and more than 5% of solar photovoltaic. Similarly, we expect the world to increase to 10% wind electricity generation and 10% solar photovoltaic generation based on current trends. Uh, something I think that's very interesting that could really have a dramatic effect on electricity generation and the energy types that will increase in importance is the electric vehicle and the plug-in hybrid vehicle. If you look at the United States, we have 280 million vehicles. And if we assumed 100% transition from gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles to solely electric vehicle market, that would increase our need for electricity by 25%. Naturally, that's something that would happen gradually and the power plants would be able to respond to it. But if we did need an increase in 25% electricity, that's gonna increase demand and development of renewable energy to, to meet these demands. Now, in terms of whether these trends become a reality or not, but if you look at some of the periodicals we have in the United States, for example, there's a car and driver magazine that had a 2021 article. And I'll just, just give you a few examples of what's happening in the electric vehicle industry. Ford and General Motors, just in the next five years, plan to invest 29 billion and 27 billion in the development of electric vehicles. Toyota, by 2025, plans to have 30 electric vehicle markets in their, their lineup. The United Kingdom has a plan by 2030 to ban sales of all new sales of any gasoline and diesel powered vehicles. And by 2025, General Motors has a plan to completely eliminate diesel and gasoline vehicles from production. The United States recently passed a $2 trillion infrastructure, one part of which is to address the issue of charging. One of the problems with electric vehicles now is something we call range anxiety. And that's really based on the fact that electric vehicles typically have ranges of 300 miles and Typical charging stations at 220 volts require long periods of time, three to four hours, to completely recharge the vehicle. But as part of the infrastructure package that was passed in the United States, there's a plan to have a half a million high voltage charging stations by 2030. And these would have outputs on the order of 500 and 600 volts, which would allow you to recharge your electric vehicle in only 10 minutes. This could really be a step change in the development and sales of electric vehicles in our country. And if these stations become prevalent, it's going to take a lot of the concerns people have about going on road trips with electric vehicles. And that could be a, a real step change in the purchasing plans of Americans as they buy new vehicles. And Europeans as well, because I was just talking to uh, the father of a friend of mine 
And uh -huh. he mentioned exactly that was one of the reasons why he was considering buying an electric vehicle, but he wasn't sure yet. So, so that was interesting. Um, okay, next question. Um, in your book, you say that energy usage has increased 84% over the last 20 years. Um, could you explain why this happened? And also, what effect do you think the pandemic will have on this? Well, the, the first part of the question, I really based on two parts. One probably is pretty obvious that there's continuing population growth in the world, and that alone is increasing demand. Just for example, about the period time period I was born in 1950, the US stood at 159 million people. And today we now have almost 340 million people. So just in my lifetime, I've seen a more than doubling of the United States in terms of population. And likewise, about the time I was born, the world stood at around two and a half billion in 1950. But now the world is closing in on 8 billion people, which is a more than 200% increase from 1950. And if you look at projections, population is starting to level off. It's not increasing linearly anymore. But nevertheless, the United States is projected to be at 380 million by 2050. And uh, in 2100, all the way to almost 435 million. And the world is projected to be close to 10 billion people by 2050 and 11 billion by 2100. The other factor that's really increasing demand in electricity and fuel transportation usage is energy use per capita. So looking at income is very important. And in, in the book, there I devote a, a chart that looks at per capita energy uses versus per capita income. So naturally, if you make more money, you're more likely to be spending more money on energy. Things we take for granted in the United States and in Europe, taking vacations, air conditioning, homes, individual car ownership, those are things that are very energy intensive and they're not that common maybe in third world countries, but we take them for granted in the United States. So looking at the United States, for example, if you look at the barrel oil equivalent per capita, and this is a metaphor often used in energy, a barrel oil equivalent simply means we're totaling all the energy used per person and representing it in terms of a barrel of oil, even though that energy use also includes heating your home, air conditioning your home, and using electricity for other things. In the United States, we use about 50 to 55 barrels of oil equivalent per person. That's a rather interesting metaphor as well when you think about each person in the United States consuming 50 or more barrels of oil every year. So when you look at the United States and you look at our income, our income has gone from around $50,000 per capita in 2008 to now 65,000 in 2019. However, over that same period, our energy usage hasn't really changed. So that tells me that in the United States, even though income has gone up, energy usage stayed relatively constant because we've made some strides in conservation and using energy more efficiently. But if you look at the two largest growing countries in the world, those would be China and India, those countries are obviously seeing very large population growth, but they're also seeing great growth in their per capita income because their GDP is increasing. They're still not on the level of Western Europe or the United States, but for example, just in the last 10 to 12 years, China per capita income has gone from 3,500 to 10,000, still quite a bit less than the 50 to 70,000 that you see in Western Europe and the United States, but more than doubling, almost tripling in their country. And in, in India, you see the same thing that per capita income has increased from around $2,000 to almost $10,000 per person. So I think the implication is rather straightforward to see. As India and China continue to grow economically, they're also going to continue to grow in their use of energy. And that's going to put more and more pressure on energy use in the world. And as the population and the GDP of the growing economic countries in the world, like China, like India, even like Vietnam, continue to grow, we're going to see increasing pressure and increasing usage of energy, especially fossil fuels. Frankly, in terms of the pandemic, I think we've already seen the effect that that will have. When you look at numbers in the world and the United States, 
we saw a very large drop in energy usage between 2018 to 2019 and 2020. But in 2021, and as I track 2023 through the first half of the year, our energy use has really already returned to pre-pandemic conditions. So while there has been certainly some change in lifestyles in the United States, I know that a lot of people are working more from their home and not driving into offices. Overall, we haven't seen that big of a decrease in either transportation energy or electricity energy. So we're basically back to pre-pandemic energy use in the United States. What are the implications of not changing our energy habits? Well, the first implication is that we, as I mentioned, we do have a finite amount of fossil fuels and we are gonna run out of petroleum. I projected around 47 years from now and natural gas in 53 years. Another problem about not changing our dependence on fossil fuels is that we put ourselves in situations where political views can be in stark contrast to our energy needs. And Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas while Russia is currently invading the Ukraine and how this opens up a pretty hostile situation where you're depending on natural gas from Russia while we're vilifying Russia for invading the Ukraine. And it's, it's similar in the United States in that our president was put under pressure to lower the price of gasoline. So we took the position of trying to ask Saudi Arabia to produce more oil to bring down crude oil and gasoline prices. At the same time, we're vilifying Saudi Arabia for being a very overbearing and bad regime. So one of the implications of not changing our habits is that we're put in a political strife between our energy needs and our political views. Another thing is that if the earth continues to warm, and I believe it's due to carbon dioxide, even if that's not necessarily an overall common view in the United States, it's going to continue to change our health and the health of the planet and the animals that live in it and changing weather patterns. We've actually seen more hurricanes and more tornado growth in the United States in the last five years than we've seen ever in our history. And these changes as always seem to affect the most vulnerable because the people that are affected by these are the ones that live in, in floodplains and downstreams of waterways. The people most vulnerable who end up living in the areas that are most likely to be flooded or polluted. And as extreme weather continues to affect our country and the world, it can affect crop growth and have a disruptive effect on the ability to provide food to people. Why should we all care about making clean energy affordable? Well, clean energy helps address climate change and the effect of CO2 greenhouses on the environment. But for those that don't believe in climate change occurring due to carbon dioxide, we can also point out that clean energy creates jobs, both in the technical fields and in the manufacturing and maintenance area. So it creates jobs, not only for professionals, but also for blue collar workers. And this could become more critical as changing technology could result in the loss of some blue collar jobs. For example, they're experimenting with ways of driving trucks using computers. So one of the, the largest employment area for blue collar males in the United States is the trucking industry. And if this industry transitions towards computer controlled trucks on our interstate highways, it's going to create a great loss of jobs. And creating renewable energy jobs can bring about creating some jobs for people in the blue collar as well as the technical industry. And which energy types do you think we should be encouraging people to use more in their daily lives? Well, when we talk about people using energy types in their daily lives, I'm thinking of things that over which I can have direct control as opposed to a, a nuclear or, or solar energy based power plant that a, a government or a company builds. So when I look at things that I can do personally, two things that I can actually do in terms of infrastructure for my home are solar panels and geothermal heat pumps. Now, solar panels are sort of taking off in the United States. To look at this analytically, the average cost of a kilowatt hour in the United States is, is 10 cents. And in my home, I use about 800 kilowatt hours a month. So in Oklahoma, if you look at the five peak hours we had, I would need a five kilowatt 
system to totally provide the electricity needs I have, I could actually have that system built with tax credits for $11,000 and I could break even in about 10 years if I put a solar panels on my roof. So that's one thing that people could be encouraged to do more. Geothermal heat pumps are a little more problematic because they're much more expensive. They're wonderful systems in that they take advantage of the relatively constant ground temperature, which allows you to heat your home in the winter and cool your home in the summer by drawing air from 50 to 100 feet below the surface. The problem is these systems cost 20 to $50,000 to install. So they take a lot longer to pay off on the order of 15 to 20 years, which maybe doesn't make them very attractive for most homeowners in the United States. And, but there are some simpler things that we all can do. For example, just changing your light bulbs from incandescent to LEDs can actually reduce your energy use by 80% from the electricity used for light bulbs. Air sealing your home is, is pretty important. Just looking for leaks in your home can allow you to save money. Another thing is cleaning or replacing your air filters. You'd be amazed that dusty air filters actually make your air conditioner and heater systems work harder and increases your energy use. Some other things you can do, for example, during the summer, we close our blinds we, and our drapes and shades during the day to keep our temperature cooler and make our air conditioner work less. And in the winter, you turn the other way and you open up these shades and you let some sun into your room. One last thing that, that people can do in the summer is setting their thermostats higher and setting their temperature lower in the winter. We actually set our thermostat at 78 degrees in the summer and 68 degrees in the winter, which has saved our electricity and heating bills close to 10%. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Paul. We really appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate it as well. And and thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to, to talk about this very important subject. We want to thank our guests, Martin Pasqualetti, author of The Threat of Energy, and Paul Meyer, author of The Changing Energy Mix, for speaking with us about the importance of affordable and clean energy. Please check out our show notes on the OEP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 75 was produced by Stephen Filippi, Himali Rupasinga, and me, Stella Edison. Thank you for listening.